Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Marie Boroff, Yale Sterling Professor Emeritus of English, speaking about humanities tomorrow. You would think the fury of aerial bombardment would rouse God to relent. The infinite spaces are still silent. He looks on shock-pride faces. History, even, does not know what is meant. You would feel that after so many centuries, God would give man to repent. Yet he can kill as Cain could, but with multitudinous will, no farther advanced than in his ancient furies. Was man made stupid to see his own stupidity? Is God, by definition, indifferent beyond us all? Is the eternal truth man's fighting soul, wherein the beast ravens in its own avidity? I've quoted only three of this poem's four stanzas, reserving the last one for a later moment. I found it in the best website there is, called deepseaofmemory.net. That unfathomable depth of the psyche in which float all the poems that those who love poetry have found particularly meaningful and moving. Its title is The Fury of Aerial Bombardment. I wonder if any of you know it. If so, perhaps you also know the name of its author, Richard Eberhardt. Though Eberhardt wrote the poem during World War II, almost 60 years ago, it expresses with almost unbearable aptness what we see every day in the headlines, aerial bombardment being only one of the all too many methods of destruction responsible for the wholesale smashing of thousands upon thousands of lives in Afghanistan and Iraq and Darfur and the Congo and Rwanda and Sri Lanka and Israel and Lebanon. The list is ever changing and open ended. The poem came to me out of that deep sea of memory when I was considering how I might try to convey to you my sense of the meaninglessness of the world we confront today, a world where history, as Eberhardt says, does not know what is meant. The dreadful violence visited upon so much of humanity is but one conspicuous aspect of it. I see a second, less conspicuous, but equally threatening kind of meaninglessness in the deludes of unsorted, unprocessed information. Not knowledge, not understanding, certainly not wisdom, but raw information that floods in upon us hour by hour along ever more crowded electronic highways. The language continuously posted by bloggers, verbal and video, 12 million of them in the United States, according to a recent count, the language exchanged by the tens of millions of daily visitors to MySpace, YouTube, and other such websites. The language accumulating in unimaginable quantities, ranging in quality from the thoughtful and enlightening to the exhibitionistic and obscene. Not language alone. Consider the thousands upon thousands of iTunes, the iPods capable of storing the complete works of Mozart, equally capable, of course, of storing the complete television performances of American Idol, the digital photos, including Kitty and other kinds of porn, flashing in gigabytes through cyberspace, and last but not least, the information and misinformation ready to be Googled, Yahooed, and Wikipedia'd about everything and everybody, anything and anybody. 
We have, in fact, all but arrived at the state of things triumphantly prophesied by Kevin Kelly a little over four months ago in the New York Times magazine, when the computer screen will have vanished, the will have vanquished the independently existing verbal artifact, and on it, quote, now visible to one billion people on Earth, the universal library of human knowledge, unquote, in all the world's mutually unintelligible languages, will have erected a new and indestructible Tower of Babel. Add to all this a third aspect of meaninglessness, which, given my limited time, I can do no more than mention, the ongoing despoliation of air, water, and earth from equatorial rainforests to polar ice, which we greet when it is momentarily thrust upon our attention with skepticism, with indifference, or with a sense of helplessness verging on despair. In the fury of human violence, the deluge pouring through cyberspace, and the degradation of our planet, we see the wreck our world has become, and with it, the virtual submergence of meaning itself. The humanities are an indispensable resource in such a world because they themselves are meaning. More exactly, they constitute one of the three great realms of meaning that are part of all civilized life, the realm of human self-representation, the other two being the realm of social interaction, political and personal, and the realm of intellectual inquiry. I define meaning in the humanities as a kind of power peculiar to the representation of human experience in literary and other works, a power whose presence, when recognized, gives us pleasure, connects us with one another, and adds to the storehouse of memories that constitutes the history of culture. I shall suggest that humanistic studies can more usefully be thought of as episodes or moments of engagement with such works, charged, we hope, by shocks of recognition, than as time spent passively learning about their contents and their history. An important task for those of us who teach the humanities is to arrange encounters of this kind. Our ultimate aim, never to be neglected or forgotten, is to enlarge the minds of our students by enabling them to share in the infinite variety of human experience as represented by human creativity. We find meaningful, in the sense that interests me here, anything that makes an impression on us, attracting our attention in such a way as to enhance our inner lives. What we find meaningful, we find important. When we say something means a lot to us, we're saying that it helps to support and sustain us. The meaningless world described in Richard Eberhardt's poem, The Fury of Aerial Bombardment, offers us no such comfort. Indeed, there looms behind his words the nightmarish possibility that human beings, including you and me, are unimportant, that God, if there is a God, is indifferent to our individual or collective fates. Meaning, so conceived, is communal. The ability to respond to it, the faculty of recognition, is part of our common humanity. A meaningful world is a world of connections, not least those in which we share attentiveness and admiration with others. And it is a world whose contents we view comparatively, selecting some things as more worth our attention, speaking more directly to our condition, as the friends say, than others. 
It thus stands in diametric contrast to that imagined by the poet Elizabeth Bishop, implied, for example, by the sad comment that follows a series of reminiscences of foreign travel in her poem, Over 2,000 Illustrations and a Complete Concordance. Quote, everything only connected by and and and, or in Macbeth's words, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. To be complete, my account of meaning must stress the all-important correlation between meaning and memory. If a poem by Richard Eberhardt floats into my mind as I try to think how to begin this talk, that is because at some time in the past it seemed important to me. And so, instead of disappearing beyond recall, it sank into the mysterious space within the mind, that deep sea of memory.net, from which things emerge into the light without our having known that we had stored them in the dark. <clears throat> I spoke a moment ago of the faculty of recognition as part of our common humanity. One of my announced purposes today is to talk about the humanities to attempt to define them and to suggest ways of teaching them. The connection between the singular word and the plural, between humanity and the humanities, is of course basic. And in fact, the ancestor of the word humanities, used as the name of a group of studies, subjects of study, is the Latin word humanitas, signifying the human race in general. The humanities have most commonly been defined as comprising those monuments of human culture, of philosophy, history, literature, and the fine arts that have been recognized as deserving of attention and admiration and that have accordingly been preserved in memory from the time of their origin to the present. Having stated this definition, I immediately find myself leery of it. It expresses what I think of as the Mount Rushmore conception of the humanities implicit in such formulas as the best that has been thought and felt, and in the shelf of great books, that row of towering monuments to the human intellect that were considered the sine qua non of higher education by my former teachers at the University of Chicago, Mortimer Adler and Robert Hutchins. So let me give you another definition that I find more attractive, formulated by another and the best of my former teachers at Chicago, the great Ronald S. Crane. Crane did not define the humanities in terms of their subject matter, the canonical, quote, works of literature and art taught in courses in the humanities divisions of colleges and universities. Rather, he defined humanistic study as a way of looking at and talking about such things. We view cultural achievements as humanists, he said, when we acknowledge that they could not have been predicted in terms either of the social conditions of the time when they were written or of the shared characteristics of the human psyche. Unpredictable and therefore wonderful in the literal sense of that word, capable of arousing wonder and admiration. Crane was an unpretentious man and the epigraph he chose for the essay I've been paraphrasing, it's called The Idea of the Humanities, is unpretentious. He took it from Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. It is, the world is so full of a number of things, I'm sure we should all be as happy as kings. Wonderful things. Crane's definition of the humanistic experience is blessedly free of solemnity. 
It enables students of literature to engage in a direct and unabashed encounter with the work in question, rather than contemplating it through a veil of reverence. Such encounters need not be solemn. We can admire and wonder at Falstaff as much as at Milton's Satan. What is essential in them is our recognition of powerfully represented experience as human and our response to it in terms of our own humanity, whether we are listening to Falstaff saying, I would it were bedtime, Hal, and all well, or Satan in hell declaiming, hail horrors, hail. The humanities thought of in this way are of value because the meanings of human character, experience, and fortune, when powerfully represented in the literary and other arts, take on a vitality that can or should light up the darkness threatening to engulf our world. <clears throat> the very fear of meaninglessness conveyed by a play of Samuel Beckett's or a poem such as Elizabeth Bishop's over 2,000 illustrations or Richard Eberhardt's The Fury of Aerial Bombardment takes on meaning in the form of a verbal artifact that commands the attention and lingers in the memories of its readers or hearers. The humanistic response in Crane's sense often is, but need not be, experienced on a large scale or over a long period of time, say 12 books or five acts, nor need it take place in a university or college classroom. It may take place unexpectedly, in an instant. What it must do is to shock us, to jolt our minds into an enhanced awareness that brings about remembrance as the electricity in a live outlet shocks a venturesome hand. I would add that to produce this effect, it must include an element of the unexpected. Many years ago, I was visiting a friend at a cottage in the Adirondack Mountains that had been in her family for several generations. In my room, <clears throat> there was an old-fashioned wooden desk with drawers on either side of a central knee hole. And one day, when I was alone in the room, I was moved to pull out those drawers and see what, if anything, was in them. Mostly they were empty, but toward the back of one was a sheet of paper on which some words had been written in pencil. I read them, and for a moment my heart stopped beating, for I had found myself, without warning, in the presence of a poet. I too have slept, earth kept. I too have lain where sunlit leaves could trace tattered patterns across my face. And that was all. You won't find these words in Google, or I think in any other search engine, however vast its reach. They were never published, nor, so far as I know, was the poem of which they would have been the first lines ever finished. I have no idea who wrote them, though I have a strong sense that it was a woman. Perhaps because I felt that I ought not to have been poking my nose into those desk drawers, I never told my hosts I had found them. But I have never forgotten them, as you see, and I still vividly remember the shock of recognition I experienced when I first read them. When I spoke of the humanities as a bulwark against the threat of meaninglessness posed by the wreck our world has become, I said that they comprised a great realm of meaning that forms part of all civilized life, namely the realm of human self-representation. Let me say a little more on that subject. Every branch of human self-representation has its medium, 
tangible or intangible, some sort of material that resists all attempts to invest it with an expressiveness commanding the attention and lingering in the memory of others. Thousands of years before the beginnings of recorded history, when the arts and indeed language itself had first come into being, every community would have included people who stood out as gifted at handling this or that medium. The masters of language who first communicated their emotions and thoughts effectively, the artists who first delineated shapes and filled them with color, making visible in two dimensions not only the forms, but the beauty and power of the great animals, the storytellers and thinkers who first composed narratives of past events and explored the ramifications of ideas, the myth-makers and priests who first shared with others their intuitions of the presence of the supernatural within and beyond the natural world. In addition to all this, every human society we know anything about has had its version of what the 20th century poet Kenneth Koch called the poetry language a level or register or code of language distinguished sharply from the language of every day, whose features included, at least in early times, the linking of words and sequence by patterns of rhythm and sound. Such patterns pleased the ears of those who recognized them, but they also did something far more important. They served as an aid to memory. In a time when what we now call literary works were recited to communal audiences by bards who knew them by heart. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. The poetry language was the medium in which stories true and imagined were first told. Stories recounting the deeds of the chieftains and warriors of our people and of those of the supernatural beings imagined by our myth makers and priests. History and religion alike began as poetry and poetry began as commemoration. How can the humanities as I've defined them be taught? I shall begin my answer to this question by repeating the definition of meaning I proposed earlier as a power whose presence in literary and other works, when recognized, gives us pleasure, connects us with one another, and adds to the storehouse of memories that constitutes the history of culture. On consideration, we can see that the power of meaning is rather potential than actual, attaining reality only when the faculty of recognition is brought to bear on it. You remember the tree, if it falls in the woods and there's no one there, does it make a sound? Uh, is there irony if nobody sees that there is irony? And the corresponding faculty of recognition, too, remains potential, like the ability to dance, until it is made real by training and practice. Even small-scale literary works have many layers and kinds of meaning, and these meanings are not overt and easily understood as they might be in a volume of cliff notes. Beginners in literary studies must be helped to recognize patterns of repetition, to infer what is implicit in language, to distinguish the ironic from the straightforward, to understand metaphors and symbols. These abilities will give them a source of pleasure that they can return to when they have left the classroom far behind. And the interactions with literary works that take place in their studies will enrich the storehouses of their memories. When the subject of study is poetry, the student must be taught how to recognize and name the features of the poetry language, especially in the lyric, whose brevity makes the qualities of particular words and sequence all important. 
Teaching lyric poems, I've tried to get my students to see how many kinds of expressiveness an accomplished poet can vest in a short sequence of words, aside from their lexicographical and syntactical meanings. Expressiveness deriving from their associations and past history, from their use in figures of speech, from rhythmic patterns and patterns of vowel and consonant sounds, from shifts in level of diction and a range between the solemn and lofty to the casual and down to earth, and last but not least, from the relation of a new poem to the poetry that has been preserved in cultural memory, the indebtedness of the poet, whether explicitly acknowledged or not, to tradition. Using the terminology of the poetry language brings with it the special pleasures of expertise, which there's always an element of smugness too, I think. I myself enjoy watching baseball on television or listening to the broadcast of a game. My pleasure in doing this depends on my expertise in the sport, limited though I tell you it is, my awareness not only of the general rules of the game, but of a few of the finer points. I enjoy hearing the words naming each kind of pitch, a splitter, a slider, a sinker, a cutter, a high heater, and so on. I take no pleasure in football games, even, God forgive me, football games at Yale, because I can't understand what's going on with them. I have no expertise, even when I listen to the announcer's commentary. The pleasure of responding to the poetry language depends on one's expertise in a different kind of game, but a game nevertheless. For sliders, sinkers, splitters, read iams, trochees, spondees, alliteration, assonance, and stop lines, and all the rest. Would I have had that heart-stopping experience in the Adirondacks if I had found a piece of paper on which was written, I love to walk in the woods and find a bed of leaves under a tree and lie down. I feel safe there somehow as if Mother Nature were watching over me. Of course not. Those words might be meaningful to me in human terms. I might think, I like the sound of that person. I, I'd rather like to meet her or I know just what she means, after which I would willingly dismiss them into the blogosphere. Reading the words, I too have slept, earth kept, I was instantly transported into poetic space, feeling the presence of a person who drew me toward her with her words as if with her arms. If I were to try to explain to you how or why this happened, I would need to take time, neither of us has, to talk in detail about various features of the poetry language. How does the poetry language work in Richard Eberhardt's The Fury of Aerial Bombardment? If I were teaching it, I would draw attention, first of all, to the poem's metrical patterns. If you could look on the lines on the page, you would see that they are roughly uniform in length, about as long as lines written in the standard meter of English poetry, the five-stress, ten-syllable, iambic pentameter line, da-dum, 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 with an occasional extra light syllable between heavy ones nowadays. His lines approximate the canonical patterns, but they also depart from them conspicuously, as you'll hear when I read the opening of the poem, trying to impose the conventionally placed five stresses. You would think the fury of aerial bombardment would rouse God to relent. You can't. In addition to being metrically rough-hewn, the lines are direct and forceful in wording. You would think, for example, sounds less lofty than one would think. As a result, they seem unceremonious, as though their speaker cared too deeply about what he was saying to be bothered with formal niceties. He gets right to the point and speaks vehemently, as if confident that what he is saying is obvious to everyone. After this forthright opening, the poem becomes more solemn in tone, 
and gains steadily in rhetorical intensity. The poet alludes to the Old Testament story of the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, yet he can kill as Cain could, but with multitudinous will. And this is helped by a series of words beginning with the harshly emphatic consonant k. He can kill as Cain could. In the next phrase, but with multitudinous will, Eberhardt rings in Shakespeare. Lady Macbeth, walking and talking in her sleep, expresses her horror at the blood of King Duncan that she thinks she sees staining her hands. No amount of water can wash it away. Rather, it will the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. In the third stanza, the beast that ravens in its own avidity, the beast has a capital B, it is the blasphemous beast traditionally symbolized as uh, the Antichrist of the Book of Revelation. I told you when I first quoted the poem that I'd left out its fourth stanza and last. I'll read that now along with the third stanza that immediately precedes it. Was man made stupid to see his own stupidity? Is God by definition indifferent beyond us all? Is the eternal truth man's fighting soul wherein the beast ravens in his own avidity. Of Van Wettering I speak, and Averill, names on a list whose faces I do not recall, but they are gone to early death, who, late in school, distinguished the belt feed lever from the belt holding Paul, P-A-W-L. In the momentary pause between two stanzas, the language of the poem has undergone a precipitous and startling change from an indignant outburst of high-flown rhetoric to a dispassionate, though solemn, factual statement. From the abstract to the concrete, from the general to the particular, from Shakespearean and biblical allusion to two non-elusive surnames and two technical terms naming the parts of a Browning machine gun. Eberhardt said that he wrote the first three stanzas in one sequence, then, quote, some time later, with an analytical mind quite removed from the passionate one in which he began, he composed the last four lines. But that tells us about Eberhardt's experience, not about what the lines do for the poem. Without them, I would say, it would be eloquent and moving, but would lack the sense of completion that comes from grounding emotional, infactual truth. In the wording of the last line, technical terms seem to force Eberhardt to abandon metrical patterning entirely, who distinguished the belt feed lever from the belt holding Paul, who can scan that. But their inclusion is important. He might instead have written some version in the poetry language of Van Wettering and Averill who learned to name the parts of the machine gun. But the knowledge implied by his choice of words places him beyond doubt for the attentive reader of the poem as the one who had himself understood and taught the operation of the gun, not only to the too many names, but to many others, so many that he cannot remember their faces. We understand the phrase names on a list as names on a course enrollment sheet. The poet thus implicates himself in the aerial bombardment that rouses him to such passionate indignation. For, as he says in a comment on the poem, he taught aerial gunnery during World War II, taught men who would be sent as supplementary crew on bombing missions to use the machine gun to shoot down enemy planes. In this last stanza, Eberhardt does something more. 
he positions himself in the age-old lineage I spoke of earlier as a descendant of the storytellers who from earliest times used the poetry language to recite and in so doing to commemorate the deeds of the heroes of our people and hence the importance of their lives. In what is probably the earliest poem in English that has come down to us, the epic poem we call Beowulf in Anglo-Saxon, we hear the words of the Danish king Hrothgar as he names his beloved counselor Ashhera and mourns his death. And I'll read it, if I may, in the original first. Dead is Ashhera, mean rune witta, and mean rad bora, exoliestalla, thun away on orlea havelon weredon, swilch shoulder er wesan, atheling er gold, swilch Ashhera was. Or, in Seamus Heaney's free but strongly resonant translation, Ashhera is dead. He was a soulmate to me, a true mentor, my right-hand man when the ranks clashed and our boar crests had to take a battering in the line of action. Ashhera was everything the world admires in a wise man and a friend. Nothing could be more meaningful in my every sense than an elegiac passage of this kind. Even one as understated as Eberhardt's fourth stanza. It implicitly affirms the value of a human life it connects the human generations, and it consigns the praise it confers on the dead to the storehouse of memory. My title, Diving Below the Wreck, is adapted, as some of you may know, from Diving Into the Wreck, the title of a book and a poem by the distinguished feminist poet Adrienne Rich. For Rich, the wreck is the past. In the poem, she explores it, suited up as a deep sea diver, swimming into it, quote, to see the damage that was done and the treasures that prevailed. That last phrase is very much to my purpose. But she finds its precious cargo, including the disregarded lives and accomplishments of the women of the past, lying, quote, obscurely inside barrels, half wedged and left to rot, unquote. For me, the wreck is the world of the present, blasted by violence, suffocated by the unsorted language dumped out from cyberspace and endangered, perhaps terminally, by ecological disease. In both of these senses, the image of the wreck is a somber one, and I want to end on a different symbolic and more hopeful note. The poem we call Beowulf, from which I quoted a moment ago, interweaves events in the life of what I take to be its fictional hero with evidently factual episodes in the history, in the pre-Christian history of the petty kingdoms in Scandinavia and Germanic Europe, a history of battles, feuds, betrayals, and revenges. In the course of the narrative as a whole, the hero contends with three quasi-mythological enemies, the huge male demon Grendel, who is killing off the Danish warriors, the equally huge female demon whose son he is, and who must be sought at the bottom of a haunted mirror or pool, and a fire dragon who flies at night, ravaging the countryside, spewing destructive fire. Throughout, the anonymous poet celebrates the heroic virtues of strength, of courage, and of loyalty on the part of those who serve kings, and of generosity on the part of the kings themselves. 
These virtues are epitomized in a sort of mantra of praise, a terse statement that appears three times in the poem with reference to three successive kings. First, the ancestral Danish king, Schild. Second, the Danish king, Hrothgar, whose kingdom Beowulf saves. And third, Beowulf himself, after he has become king in his old age of his own people, the Ats. The line in the original is, that was gold kuning. Literally, that was a good king. It is untranslatable, partly because the adjective good has been robbed of its solemn power as a word of praise by the trivial uses that are mostly made of it. A good sneeze, a good cheeseburger, a good kick in the pants. Heaney's translation, that was one good king, has the emphatic ring of the Old English, which I like, but lacks its dignity. Nor can we very well co-opt Shakespeare's wonderful every inch a king. The best equivalent in modern English I can come up with, not that I recommend it, is that was an honorable king, which captures some of the original effect because honor manifested in courage and loyalty is important among the heroic virtues. The narrator's words of praise are not limited to human beings. He frequently takes time to describe in some detail weapons and armor of superb quality, which have been bestowed as rewards for noble deeds or inherited from noble ancestors. And these artifacts take on more than literal value in the course of the poem, coming to symbolize the strength, courage, and loyalty of the warriors who possess them. In the final episode of Beowulf, the hero pits himself alone, armed with his sword and an especially crafted iron shield against the dragon who has been flying over his land at night, quote, belching out flames and burning bright homesteads, as Heaney puts it, and leaving nothing alive in his wake. The fury of aerial bombardment, it seems, is nothing new. The sword Beowulf wields as fine a is as fine a weapon as it ever was. The poet calls it iron argod, iron good from olden times. But in this last battle, its goodness no longer avails. Its failure in context signifies the defeat and destruction that will be visited on Beowulf's kingdom once he is dead by the enemies of his people. Though he succeeds in killing the dragon with the help of a single lawyer, loyal retainer, he himself is fatally burned, poisoned too by the dragon's venomous bite. Before he dies, he gives instructions to Wheelof, his retainer, to have a barrow or memorial mound built on a headland on the coast. It will be a landmark to travelers on the sea, he says, and they will know it as Beowulf's barrow. Hatath Badumara Chlau Yewurchan, Berchna after Bala, at Brimmes Nozen, Sashel to Yemundum Minum Leodum, Herch Livian and Hronus Nasa, that it Salithen Sithan Hatan Beowulvus Berch, Father Brentingas over Flora Yenibu, Feron Driva. Order my troops to construct a barrow on a headland on the coast after my pyre has cooled. It will loom on the horizon at Hronisness, the name means whale headland, and be a reminder among my people, so that in coming times, crews under sail will call it Beowulf's Barrow, as they steer ships across the wide and shrouded waters. 
The poem thus ends by describing a visible monument, a memorial mound that will serve as a beacon for sailors in their ships and by extension for all who traveled the sea of mortality. If there ever was such a mound on a Scandinavian promontory, it no longer exists any more than Old English or the poetry language of Old English exists, the language in which that unknown poet wrote. But the most important and enduring beacon of the poem is, of course, the poem itself. I expressed this idea years ago when I wrote a poem on the occasion of the retirement of Yale's great Old English scholar, metrist, and critic, John Collins Pope. Each stanza of my poem was devoted to one of the areas in which Pope taught and published. The subject of the second stanza was the poem Beowulf, and the words of the stanza were spoken in my poetic fiction by the hero himself. Huge was the horror grip, hellish the mere ground, grisly the great maw gaping aflame. Old my luck lessened, yet the long years beacon my name. Though the mound no longer exists, the poem is still very much with us, visibly in print and intangibly in recitation, as now, given new life repeatedly by its translators, including last but not least Seamus Heaney, who is writing memorable poetry today. Like the monument whose construction it describes, the poem is visible from afar, known to those who have read it and those who have not by the name of its hero. The beacon shining in the dark of the meaninglessness that threatens our world, as I have finally come to understand it, is the power inherent in every one of us to single out, take pleasure in, and hang on to in memory what we find meaningful in the words, deeds, thoughts, and artistic creations of others. That power of recognition and remembrance will last as long as the human race itself, whatever its ongoing history may turn out to be. Marie Boroff is the Sterling Professor Emerita of English at Yale University. This was recorded at the Yale Tomorrow campaign launch on September 30, 2006.